0: We, um, we are going through Philippians and we are rounding the, the corner. So, um, if you have a little uh, scripture journal, these little bad boys, uh, if you brought those, good job. We have a couple more in the back. If not, you can get a Bible and the, the scriptures are going to be up there in a second. Um, and this morning, we're going to talk about um, kind of the unique culture of the church, and one of the first companies that understood culture was Southwest Airlines. And for a long, long, long time, Southwest Airlines was on the top of every business business list of the best places to work. And a lot of businesses since then have, have understood their model and have taken, have taken it upon themselves, and so now they're a little lower. But early on, they were one of the first businesses to basically recognize that corporate culture, the way in which they do their job, the way in which they live together, the way in which they're gonna be structured, actually matters for how their business is done. And their, their motto is that they are gonna put their people first. Which is kind of interesting. As a corporation, they said, we are putting our employees first. And they have to, do, uh, they have to produce something. They, and in producing something, they need to make, you know, they have to have a bottom line. They have to be profitable. They have to do all things that a business needs to do. But the, the, the CEO said, listen, if our, if our employees are treated well, then they're going to treat their customers well. And what's interesting is, You've never heard of a Southwest airline dragging people off and people filming them uh, as they're not sitting in the right seat or whatever, right? It's because Southwest employees, they know that this is their company. They have freedom to be themselves. That's why their announcements are the best announcements. Their um, how to buckle your seatbelt is the best how to buckle your seatbelt speech. They get it because the, the, the employees know. I have a friend of mine who works for Southwest, and she loves it. She loves it. She's seen as a human being, as part of a corporate family that gets to not only do a great job with great benefits and in a great environment and then also gets to to a great service. And it is an incredible thing. And more and more corporations are figuring this out. Even churches are figuring this out. We as a church staff, um, and, and some of our church staff, are gonna, this is going to be new to you, um, but you may not remember, realize this, but we also have a, a, a culture that we're trying to have as a staff, and we're trying to have a culture as, we, as a church as well. And as a staff, we're trying to recognize that we want to care for our staff. We want to care for the people who, who serve our church in such a way so that they can serve you in an incredible way. And we have these three values. value of excellence, that we want to do such a good job and be such good stewards of what God's given us. We want to have generosity towards each other, that we're on the same team, that children's ministry is going to work with connections ministry, is going to work with outreach ministry. We're all going to work together. This morning we have students serve, we have high school kids helping out in all different parts of our church, right, because we're generous towards each other, and that we long to be people who do that in joy. We're not totally perfect there, but those are things that we live into. And the deal is that we're going to talk about this morning that as we're moving towards Christ— Part of the things that we're trying to do in this book of Philippians is that we're clarifying what does it mean to move towards Christ. And this morning, we're going to take a look at what it means to clarify our culture. As a church, there's a way in which we're called to live. And what's interesting about any sort of corporate culture, any sort of staff culture, any sort of church culture, there's great values. And you can write those values down and be like, look at these values. But they're meaningless unless you actually put them into practice. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, this passage in Philippians. We're rounding the corner on Philippians. And these are kind of the more practical takeaways for, from here on out. And, uh, and we're going to see that we're going to look at, Paul is saying to the church, here's the culture, this is the way in which you are supposed to live. And we're going to find out later that the way we're supposed to live actually takes practice. We don't just magically become those people. We don't just magically become that church, but we intentionally work towards these things. And, uh, and what we're going to take a look at in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, as I was doing my reading in the commentary, said, this, is, this passage of scripture is rooted in Jewish piety. How cool is that? Like, what is that? That's a great question. Well, Christianity is rooted in Judaism, and there's a way in which Jewish people lived. In response to God. And piety is this idea of heartfelt devotion to God. And so piety is actually our culture. And Paul is drawing on some of the best of the Jewish traditions that said, listen, the way in which we are going to live is that we are people who are connected to Yahweh. We're connected to the God of the universe. And because we're connected to God, not just worship Him because He's this almighty, all-powerful, holy God consuming fire, which is true, But he's this intimate friend who longs to journey with us, who longs to walk with us. And we're called to have—we're invited to have this heartfelt devotion. And as we have this heartfelt devotion to God, then our lives are going to reflect certain characteristics. And you may not realize this because if you're new to or newer to our church, you come to Marin Covenant Church, and we sing music, and we feel like kind of like a traditional evangelical uh, church. But did, you may not know this, but the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is the denomination we're part of, is actually not a an evangelical church. We're evangelical in that we believe in the good news. We want people to come and know Jesus Christ, and that His uh, salvation through Him is gosh is where life is, where eternal life is. But we are actually a denomination that was rooted in piety. We're a Swedish immigrant church, which means that the Swedish uh, people in the 1800s, they, they lived, uh, Lutheranism was their, was the state religion. And because you were Swedish, you were born in uh, Sweden, you were Lutheran. And they're like, well, no, there's gotta be more to just being born in Sweden that makes you a Lutheran. And there's this idea that, no, we wanna be people who are connected to God, who have this heartfelt devotion to God. And there's this pietistic movement where all these, these Christians gathered together and said, no, no, what, what matters is not if we believe all the 37 things of, of 18th century uh, Lutheran belief, or if we all don't play cards and listen to all the right music. But no, if if you know and love God and I know and love God, then we are going to journey together. And one of the early covenanters in the late 1800s, what they would say is, how goes your walk? That would be the way that they would be with each other. Like, how goes your walk? Recognizing that their spiritual formation was this journey towards Christ, was this walk with Christ. You, by being a part of Marine Covenant Church, are actually connected to a pietist tradition. So you're already crushing it. You already have got an A-plus on today's assignment. So good job. So we, as Christians, as part of the covenant church, as Christians who know and love God, as Christians who take the word of God seriously, as Christians who are rooted to the word of God found in Philippians, which is rooted in Jewish piety, the beginning of our moment this morning is to recognize that we are called to have a heartfelt devotion to God, to love God, With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength and all of our mind. And from there, right, that is the seed, and from there plants this incredible tree that bears incredible fruit. And so this morning, if you have your scripture journal, we're gonna walk through Philippians chapter four, verse four through seven, and look at what are some of the things that are markers of a culture of people who are rooted in piety, people who are rooted in having a heartfelt devotion to Jesus Christ. There's certain things that our character, that our body should look like. So here we are, Philippians chapter four, verse four says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's like some old 1980s song that's always comes in my head whenever... Whenever we hear that, rejoice in the Lord always. Isn't that funny? Rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is such this weird thing. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I always wrestle with what does it mean? To, what does joy really mean? Because there's a difference between happiness and joy. Those are two different things. And a lot of times we want to be happy but what God is inviting us to is to say, you no, know, that we are joy-filled people. Our joy is anchored in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Last week, Michael gave this incredible sermon. And uh, he taught, I love this. One of the distinctions that he said that has been with me all week is that we don't live by faith, but we live in faith. Like our very being, our very position is being in faith. Our joy is being in faith in Christ. We're not near Christ. We're not white-knuckling, trying to be good Christian people, but we're in Christ, and because we're in Christ, we have this joy. And what's incredible is joy is a mark of Christians. For, since the beginning of Christianity, one of the markers that made Christians stand out as kind of oddballs was not that they didn't cuss, and it wasn't that they didn't drink as much wine as everybody else, but is that they were people filled with joy. And for all of human history until about 50 years ago, life is really hard. It took everything in a community to just not starve to death or die in war. I mean, life was really hard for all of human history. And so life is hard for us as well, but I mean, it was really, really hard. And even in the midst of a really hard life, Christians found joy because they were in Christ. Last week, um, I got to listen to uh, David Brooks give a talk. And David Brooks is a New York Times um, a columnist and a bestseller. He wrote this book called The Second Mountain. It's, it's him kind of navigating his, his little midlife crisis. And I don't want to have a midlife crisis, so I'm reading all the midlife crisis people's books to know. But this whole book about the second mountain is this idea that in the first part of your life, you're, you're moving to attain this thing. You have these accomplishments, these goals. You want to be the man or the woman and do this thing. But the second mountain is even a bigger mountain. It's, it's a mountain where your life has, you lean into the purpose of your life, which is to give your life away. And, uh, and he, he, I just think he gives the best distinction between happiness and joy. And as Christians, we all want to be happy, but as Christians, we're called to joy. And this is what he says. What's the, difference, what's the difference between happiness and joy? Happiness involves a victory for the self. It's an expansion of self. Happiness comes as we move towards our goals, when things go our way, when you get a big promotion, when you graduate from college, when your team wins a Super Bowl. Happiness often has to do with some success, some new ability, or some heightened sensual pleasure. But joy tends to involve some transcendence of self. It's when the skin or barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away and you feel fused together. Joy is present when mother and baby are gazing adoringly into each other's eyes, when a hiker is overwhelmed by the beauty of the woods and feels one with nature, when a gaggle of friends are dancing deliriously in unison. Joy often involves self-forgetting. Happiness is what we aim for on the first mountain, but joy is the byproduct of living on the second mountain. I love this. It's, it's when the skin, the, the skin barrier between you and some other person or entity fades away. And as um, David Brooks became a, A follower of Christ later in his life, and he's wrestling with what this means. It's interesting, he's he's kind of navigating that. But what he's come to realize, which is what Christians have known forever, is that when we're in intimate relationship with one another, there's joy. And our, our posture towards God, piety, is about being in an intimate relationship with God. And what's interesting is, Kate and I have been married for a long time, and we've had plenty of seasons that are really happy. Um, We've had a, a season that's been kind of challenging for external reasons and internal reasons. And it's like, oh man, this is what like this new season of life and marriage is all about. You know, when I was 20, this is not how I envisioned it. But what's crazy is I think we have experienced more joy in this year of really hard challenge than we have even happiness in some of our younger years. Because what happens is the more you become intimate with someone, the more the barrier between you and somebody else is, is erased. All the things that we do to gird up, to prove how great we are, get to fade, and you just get to be your authentic self, to be loved as your authentic self. And God is the perfect partner, the perfect friend, the perfect person to walk with us. And the more that we come close to Him, our joy is Him. So we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord because our identity is secure. Our personhood is secure. We are valued. We've been given purpose. We've been given something to do that's bigger than our own selfish needs. And so we rejoice in the Lord. So part of our culture rooted in piety is that we rejoice in the Lord. Our joy is anchored in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Let your, reasonably, let your reasonable, ugh, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Boy, that's, that's inspiring. Let your reasonable, and reasonable, I can't even say it, reasonableness be known to everybody. And uh, like I said, Michael gave an excellent sermon last week. And I'm like, gosh, I knew he did such a good sermon because halfway through I started feeling really insecure. I'm like, gosh, Michael's crushing it. And, uh, and he busted out all this Greek and he did all these fancy, like, he's really smart. So I'm like, oh, I want to be smart too. So I was like, I'm going to do some Greek work because here's the deal. Reasonableness is such a boring word. And in fact, in the NIV, the Bible that I normally read in my normal quiet time, it says, let your gentleness be known to everybody. And I'm like, is it gentleness or is it reasonableness? And so you do your little Greek study and you realize that the Greek word for reasonableness is epi. No, it's epiakis, something like that. It's a dead language. I don't even know, but I did my little Greek study because I wanted to be like Michael, who pronounces Greek better than me. But it's this. It's this really unique word, epiakis. That's what it means. But it's, 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 it means forbearance, gentleness, reasonableness, which all three of those words do not feel like they should be in the same Venn diagram. But they are because it's, it's a word that's rooted to wisdom. In James chapter 3, verse 17, it says, the wisdom of the Lord is epicus. It's, it's gentleness. It's forbearance. It's reasonableness. It's this idea that, that, that it's this gentleness that's rooted in wisdom. I like to think of it as grandparent gentleness. It's it's when our actions drip with gentleness. And the deal is that we want to be grandmas. When we grew up, we all want to be grandmothers. Grandmothers are the most incredible beings. And they're so incredible because they're old and they're wise. They've raised you, hellion kids who are now adults, and now they just get to love their grandkids. They get to sit in the bed with them and they get to read stories with them. And you know what's weird? Because they dealt with you as an adult, they don't care about their kids' grades. They don't care about if they got to go to homecoming or not. They didn't care about if they're experimenting with stuff they shouldn't be experimenting with at their age. They're just settled. Because they're wise. They know where the decimal point is. And because they know where the decimal point is, they get to just love their grandkids. Now, my grandma was not like this. My grandma, you know, she sent us outside in the heat of the summer, and uh, she wasn't the kind grandmother that, uh, that we all wanted. I think she would have been as we would if I lived closer. But I love this picture of the grandma who loves us. And that's really what our invitation is, that we are to be wise, gentle people to one another. What's crazy is not we're wise, gentle people to, to the people that we like. We're not wise and gentle people, the people who are wise and gentle back to us. Our reasonableness, our gentleness is to be wise with everybody, to be gentle with everybody. And we live in a context and in a culture where no one is gentle where no one is wise with each other. There is no forbearance. In fact, we're so fast to be offended that we just like, we burn bridges. We want to burn bridges as quickly as possible. And in fact, if you burn, the more bridges you burn, the better Christian you are because you are standing up for the right thing. But I think if we're going to have this culture of piety rooted in heartfelt devotion to Christ, then we model his long suffering towards one another, that we are gentle towards one another. The way I think of it is, is that, that we're shock absorbers, right? We all, we all have prickly friends. We all have particular friends. Maybe you're one of the partic- particular, particular prickly friends. God bless you for that. As followers of Christ, though, our job is to not react to the prickly people around us. There's always reasons to be offended. There's always reasons to be hurt. There's always for reasons to walk in and for people to bump us. But as Christians, as people whose hearts are transformed by Christ, we're people who take people's prickliness and we absorb it. It's costly. It is a costly call to be gentle to everybody, but that's what we do. We absorb people's prickliness. And we extend love and grace, and therefore we model the culture of Christ. We rejoice in the Lord always. And then our actions drip with gentleness. Can you imagine if we could just get those two things right? Boy, that's a church I would want to be a part of. Thankfully, I think we are mostly that church. Our actions drip with gentleness. It says, So let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. For the Lord is at hand. And that's what's so fun about this thing about piety that the very center of the Christian experience is that Jesus is close to us, that Jesus is right with us. And because he's so close, that proximity to Jesus is actually our motivation. Being close to Jesus is the thing that motivates us. I love this picture of this dad who's teaching his daughter how to ride a bike. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever been a kid and and you're watching kids who know that their parents have their back, there's this sense of pride and accomplishment. They they can do anything because they know. Know that their dad is right behind them going, You got this thing. You got this thing. They have no idea that all that goes into that all that goes into it, but there's a there's a sense of of, of stability, there's a sense of pride, there's a sense of, of accomplishment and, and esteem when you know that someone behind you is who's bigger and stronger than you sees you and loves you and has your back. Proximity to Jesus is our motivator, and as people who are Pietists. This is us. If you could get this picture in your head and this is how you live your life, that you are this precious girl with her helmet thinking you're awesome riding your bike. But the reality is that we are only awesome riding our bike because there's a heavenly father who is so gracious, who is so kind, who is so gentle, who is so long-suffering, who will spend all day behind us, holding onto the bike, pushing us, cheering us on. And the more that we recognize who's motivating us, who's protecting us, who's empowering us, the more that we get to be even more settled as we settle in to this walk with Christ. So the Lord is at hand. And then he goes on and says this, "'Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God.'" And what's interesting is that I really wrestled with this. Do not be anxious about anything. And I know in our culture and in our context, anxiety is an epidemic. There's people who I dearly love who've been wrestled with anxiety their whole life, doing student ministry and working with young people forever and ever. It is on the rise, and our entire culture is paralyzed by it. I found this picture of a 3D image, and you don't have 3D glasses. But I want you to look at this picture because it's going to cause you anxiety. When you look at this picture, like, I get what's going on, but I'm starting to get a headache. And I kind of feel like this is what it's like having anxiety. You have a sense of how things should be, but you can't quite see your way through. And we live in this cultural moment where all the normal cultural things that have helped people know how to live how to live, what are the boundaries, not just in the Christian world, but just in a cultural world, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, am I okay, am I not okay, what makes someone a good person or not, all of the, there's no rules anymore. And whether it's on social media and trying to keep likes and have people like, you know, post enough and make sure you get some affirmation that way or you see all the things that you haven't been invited to, this is my social media experience, but you know, we have these, it just causes anxiety. And you, you know, economic, political, cultural, you don't know where you stand. And so you just have this like low level to very severe high level form of anxiety that's just rumbling around all the time. And you read a passage, the scripture says, what does it say? It's brutal. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah. um, Easy to say. In fact, I read that to my wife. She's like, "Uh, I'm going to call BS on that one. I'm like, oh, great. Look at you telling Paul BS. I love that. Um, but the deal is that we, um, that we want Scripture to be the thing that frames our being, that frames our thoughts. And anxiety is when our thoughts just run wild. And because of anxiety and anxiety disorders, you know, sometimes chemically we can't. There's way more that goes into that. So I'm just talking about normal anxiety for normal people. If, if you have an anxiety disorder, that's a different thing. But for normal anxiety for normal people, when we let our minds just go crazy, It's because we haven't put the right boundaries around it. And the reason why we're people who are rooted in Scripture, people who are rooted in God's Word, is because God's Word is like putting on the 3D glasses. And where you can, instead of seeing the images all kind of clearly, you go, oh, that is what's going on. What's interesting, in 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 ancient Greece, there were the Stoics. And I love the Stoics. The Stoics were people who, like, white-knuckled life. They were disciplined. And they were disciplined in their thought life and in their real life. And what they would do with their anxiety is they would so cram down their anxiety, they would so white-knuckle their thought life that they, they, their whole life, the peaks and valleys of their whole life, they smoothed them out. A good stoic, they didn't get too excited. They didn't get too sad because they were going to take every thought captive and they were going to never have anxiety ever again. Thankfully, we're Christians, we're not Stoics. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. We're pietists, we're not Stoics. We're pietists, which means every thought, every anxious thought, every fear, real, imagined, the thing that just spins you out. We are pietists, which means everything about our being, we come before Jesus through prayer. And supplication through prayer and thanksgiving, we offer all of our anxieties to God. Because of we're pietists, because of our culture of piety, we aren't people who white knuckle and lock down our anxiety. We're people who take all of our anxiety to the God of the universe, who helps frame our understanding, who helps frame our brains, who helps frame and gives us community to walk through and navigate these really hard seasons of life. We're pietists. And our thoughts, we are framed by Scripture. And because we're people who are rooted in Scripture—it's interesting, I've read Philippians hundreds of times, and by slowing down and preaching through Philippians, I'm like, oh my goodness, Philippians is rooted in our identity in Christ. Every part all along the way, all of who we are, only matters because we are in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord. We're gentlest to each other. We don't let our anxiety just run roughshod over us, but we're people who take every thought captive, and we're bound by Scripture. And we're bound by all of Scripture. So if you're an anxious person, spend some time in Psalms. David, that guy was anxious, man. That guy, his prayer journal is crazy. And one of my new uh, disciplines is to read one Psalm every day. And the guy who invited me in his discipline, I'm like, I don't get it. Listen, I'm a five on the Enneagram. I want to be a Stoic. I want to be smooth. So I'm not naturally an emotive high and low person. And I've always hated the Psalms because I just feel like David is out of control. But after two years of every day being in the Psalms, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm actually the one who's wrong. I actually need to allow myself to have some of the really high highs and really low lows. I don't need to lock those things down. I need to bring those things to God, who's the creator of the universe, who made me, who made you, who longs to walk with you in that. All right, we're almost done here. And then verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And lastly, the fruit. If we're good pietists, if our hearts are so devoted to Christ, and we start doing the work that we move towards joy, and we are gentle with one another, and we take our anxieties and we give them before Christ, and those are the things that are the markers of our life and our culture, and we do life together, those are things that we push ourselves towards, then all of a sudden, peace is the thing that marks our life, shalom. I think shalom is one of the greatest uh, Hebrew words ever. It's not just peace. It's not like the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was peace, but really what that meant was it meant that the, the Roman government just crushed every rebellion. If you were not peaceful in the, in the Roman way, then you were a dead person, right? That's not what, the, that's the, the Pax Romana, that's not peace. Peace is shalom. It's wholeness. It's integrity. It's being the, the best version that God made you to be, doing the exact thing that God made you to be. It's living in peace. If we do this thing right, if our hearts are devoted to Christ, if our faith is anchored in scripture and rooted in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we understand who God is. We understand that we, where we're going in life and we can have peace going there. Whenever we start trying to rule our lives, right, that's when the wheels come off. So our life is ruled by peace. I don't know if you guys are big fans of Ariana Grande. Um, I'm not. But she, uh, she went to Disneyland, and, uh, and there's this great picture of her with Mickey Mouse. And, um, and every time I've gone to Disneyland, I've never been this happy. Look at her. She, she's having such a great time. Whenever I go to Disneyland, I hate it. It's so expensive. There's so many lines, and I'm bitter that every dollar I'm spending, I'm standing in line. I think, wow, each ride is costing me $47, and I'm just bitter and upset, and I'm anxious because I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this total circus act that's taking all my money and joy, and it's the happiest place on earth. But when Ariana Grande when Ariana Grande goes to Disneyland, I'm convinced she loves it. And this is how I know she loves it, because Ariana Grande does not go to Disneyland like you or me. She has a concierge. And the reason I know this is because I once had a concierge. My cousin happened to marry this guy who could buy and sell Ariana Grande like 10 times. And um, I want him to hire me someday, but I don't know what he does, and so I'm not going to be able to work for him. But my cousin, as a gift to our whole family, invited us to go to Disneyland and have a concierge. And I'm like, ooh, a concierge. Now listen, I'm like, I'm like a normal yokel. I don't know what that means. But I went. And it was crazy because I went to Disneyland, and for the very first time ever, I experienced peace at Disneyland. And the reason why I experienced peace is because I was not in charge. I mean, I got, I got to say, I wanted to go to, uh, you know, I wanted to go to the Matterhorn. I wanted to go to the different rides. I forget their all names because I hate Disneyland so much. But I... <laughs> But I was at peace. And the reason I was at peace is because there were these, this, this, these three people who were running around like mad women and men for us. Oh, you want to go to Space Mountain? All right, we'll go to Space Mountain. They take our tickets and they would take off. And, and, and these two people are running all over, the, all over Disneyland. And we and our family, we're just meandering along. All of a sudden we show up and they, we go through some back entrance and we're first in line. And we walk onto the Space Mountain, no line. Disneyland would be epic. You look like suckers, all those anxious people. Not me. I'm at peace. And then we're like, and then, you know, we go to all different places. Every single place we show, we walk it's the front of the line. Everyone hated us. But I was like, hey, we paid our money. Well, I didn't. My cousin did. But I'm like, I'm like living large. And I was experiencing peace and joy. Have you ever had a meal at Disneyland? Try to do a meal with 12 people at Disneyland? Nightmare. Well, you've, you're normal people us Ariana Grande people with concierge, all of a sudden we showed up at this restaurant and there was a whole table with drinks ready for us. And we sat down and then all of a sudden food just came and we ate and we laughed and we took pictures. And then we did the next thing all day long. And I got, we got back to the hotel and I was like, oh, this is so good. This is how Disneyland was meant to be made, how it was meant to be experienced. And I realized it was meant to be experienced because... There was somebody who was in charge, who had resources, who had access, who had power, and who navigated the way for us. When I try to do that all by myself, I'm anxious, I'm frustrated, I'm upset. I am not pietistic. I'm not a very good Christian. But when I recognize that the God of the universe longs to walk with me, longs to live with me, longs to express joy and peace and life with me, when I trust His leaning and not try to make everything happen, all of a sudden, I get to be at peace. And like I said in the beginning, life has always been hard. So being at peace does not mean that everything's going to work out the way you want it to work out. But what it does mean is that the God of the universe has made Himself known to you and me. He offers us His presence He invites us to walk with him. And by walking with him, the culture that we're invited to live in is one of joy, one of gentleness, one that's free from anxiety because we're reminded through the word of God of who God is so that we can trust him more and we can experience peace. Gosh, may that be true in me. May that be true in you. May that be true in us as the body of Christ who longs to be an an exhibit to the world of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. So you're pietist people. How cool is that? How goes your walk? May you work out your walk towards Christ and may he give you peace.